Welcome to the DMBA podcast where we share business confidence with design community. And yes, welcome also to the last episode of this year. So Franz, Tom and I are taking a shorter break in December and we will be back with our usual format of business design teardowns in January. But for our 100th episode, we're hosting a very special guest, Dan Moll. Some people say that Dan Moll and design systems are virtually synonymous terms. And in this episode, we will definitely dig deep into Dan's latest book called Design That Skills, which very recently came out and has a lot of extremely useful and unexpected tips for all designers who are trying to get design systems adopted in organizations. Dan also runs a design system university, and he previously ran a very successful agency called Super Friendly with clients such as Nike, Envision, Harvard Business School, New York Times, and so on. We will dive deep into that part of Dan's story, talk about agency, as well as pricing design services. And now, without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Dan, co-hosted by Tom and me. Welcome, Dan. Thank you, Alan. Glad to be here. So Tom and I have been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time, haven't we, Tom? We, yeah, we have indeed. Um, been a big admirer of Dan's, Dan's work for, for a while now, kind of back through like your work with agencies that I sort of admired coming up in the, in the design game, Happy Cog and places like that. And obviously the stuff you've done around pricing and freelancing and then design systems. So there's an awful lot we could talk about today. Um, but yeah, we've got a couple of areas we really want to focus on. So yeah, we're, we're very excited to have you here, Dan. So yeah, thanks awesome. for joining Thank us. You. Yeah, my pleasure. I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> so Dan, as this is a podcast that explores the intersection of business and design, we thought the best place to start would be with a very business-oriented discussion, which is uh, numbers, money, pricing, and so on. Yes. Uh, right, Tom? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think this is one of the areas um, that, for me, Dan, like uh, a lot of the stuff you've put out over the last like five, ten years, um, resonated as a freelancer. A lot of stuff around trying to get designers more comfortable talking about money, um, comfortable pricing themselves more appropriately. Um, and your book, Pricing Design, which was like it's highly recommended, uh, one that I've I've gone back to several times over the years, is all about getting designers. Um, paid more appropriately for the value their work can generate. Um, contains some excellent advice and scenarios on having better conversations with clients to sort of unlock that. Um, so yeah, real eye-opener for me. And the, the main mantra from that book um, and that methodology is sort of price to the customer, not to the service or the product, right? Um, and I've, I've kind of had that mantra in my head for a long time whenever I'm going into new um business relationships and sort of pricing um i think it'd be great if we could start off maybe if you could give our listeners a bit of an overview of what value pricing is and why that approach makes so much more sense for designers particularly freelancers to to price in that way yeah absolutely i think um what a lot of us are trained in you know myself included and and just kind of pickups in you know we pick up in the industry is that we price a lot for the inputs that we have in our work so a lot of times that is like how much time we're spending on something or what the arbitrarily industry value of something might be the the value of a website the value of a a poster or a, a social media campaign or you know whatever those things are and the idea behind value pricing is that you actually ignore a lot of the inputs and instead you price on the out put or more specifically the outcome that you might be able to bring to a particular customer. So you're totally right that kind of the common mantra of value pricing is you price the customer, not the service. And the 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 layer that I like to put on top of that even is you price the moment, not even the customer. You know, so it's all of the things that are input all all of the things that are combined in all of that is that's what you're pricing um so it doesn't matter how long something might take you it doesn't matter you know anything like that it really just matters what is the thing that they get and what is that worth to both them and you and if you can agree on a mutual price or a mutual situation that's a good reason to do business together and if you can't then it's not uh then it's not the right moment potentially to do business together yeah excellent there's some great scenarios in there I, the bit that i found particularly useful was the kind of almost like um script of like when to approach money and to be really frank with it we're not talking about budget we're talking very specifically about money 
and that is a very different dynamic. Um, and as a, as a Brit, and very often those 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 conversations can be a little more awkward. That takes practice, kind of get the reps in. Once you start doing it, you, you build that confidence. I think a lot of people think that business is only a science, and it, it certainly is a science. But I think a lot of people forget that business is art too. You know, there's an mm. art to it, and a lot of the way that we purchase is very very emotional. You know, a lot of us have different relationships with money, and you know, I know a lot of times, especially for designers, when we're pricing, you know, clients who are big businesses and corporations, we're like, we're going to price the business, and it's like, I mean, behind a business is still people, and those people have different experiences and different baggage and different relations to money, and the way that we all spend is emotional. We don't always, you know, we don't always buy things rationally. We, in fact, most of the times we buy things irrationally, you know, there's nothing rational about buying a Ferrari. And yet lots of people buy Ferraris. Does that mean it's a bad purchase? It doesn't. It just means that for, for whatever reason, that Ferrari might have been worth it for them. And so if we can explore and understand what is worth it to people, especially mm -hmm. the people that we are trying to sell to, or that we're trying to provide value to, then we can understand what makes a good transaction between us. Yeah, there's this famous saying that nobody really hires McKinsey for the McKinsey, but they hire McKinsey because they would like to say, McKinsey told us to do this, That's which right. means yes. you have like a green light to to do a certain project. Um, but you mentioned this, like, oh, don't price the customer, but price the moment. Like, what do you mean with that? So as an example, um, when it, let's say you're going to build a website for someone, you know, for a lot of designers get hired to design websites. Well, designing a website for a startup, for example, uh, when they're first starting, uh, versus when they're right about to IPO, that's a very different price because it needs to do different things for them. It's the same customer. Um, but the, but the moment of when their first inception, you know, with the founders that you might be working with, whereas pre IPO, they might have hundreds of employees and like those are very, very different moments. And that affects the way that you would actually deliver your service. And so it, it stands to reason I think it would affect the price, even if it's the same customer. And it's also Makes that sense. moment for you as well, right? Of like at this time in your career or what you, else you've got going on, what is it worth to you, right? To, to take totally. on this work or not? I'm the same provider, but uh, when I first started versus 25 years into my career, that's a different price. I'm, I'm the same provider. Mm. Also, if I need to make rent this month, I'm cutting my rates you know, in order to get <laughs> that because I don't have anything else coming in the door versus if I'm flooded with clients, well, then my price can go up because I'm more in demand. So all of the things about supply and demand tension and you know the general ec uh, economics 101 kind of stuff comes into play here as well. Yeah. Supply and demand. It's an important Ordinary concept. <laughs> I think just, you know, designers getting more comfortable with talking about this stuff is so important. Um, so I'd say, yeah, check out the book because going to a whole bunch of that kind of mindset shift in, in more detail. Uh, and I think the more we can get designers kind of talking about this, it's, it's super valuable. Uh, an area that has been getting a bit more attention when it comes to money and design services that feels quite at odds, actually, with, with value pricing. Um, is this shift, this sort of slight trend towards like fixed price design subscription models? I'd really love to get your thoughts on this sort of increasingly popular model. You know, what do you think of this trend? What do you think it says about our industry and, and, and where we're going at the moment? So many thoughts about this. I don't know how many of them are fully formed, <laughs> but I love the the uh, opportunity to talk with somebody about this. This is great. Thank you for asking about that. Um, I have a lot of different different reactions and different kind of thoughts and emo emotions around the idea of design as a service uh, and specifically with subscription. On one hand, I'm like, is it just kind of a rebranding of retainers? Like, is that is that kind of what it is? It, it feels a little bit like that. As I've dived more into it, there are some different nuances that I think maybe make it a little bit different than retainers, but it resembles retainers. You know, and by that, what I mean is you are hiring someone for you know you as a company are are retaining a designer or hiring a designer for an extended amount of time. That might be for a month. That might be for six months. And you have some dependability in. I know I'm always going to pay five k a month or you know or whatever whatever. The that subscription rate is. Um, so I'm like, it, I think it's just giving a new name to an old concept. So part of that makes me a little bit like, I don't know, a little bit uppity about it, you know, or I'm like, I, you know, I think we're just rebranding something that's old, which I guess is the point of rebranding. An another kind of train of thought on that is um, I, I feel negative about it in that it feels like it's commoditizing something that I have 
heralded and, and regarded as a craft for a long time that is premium and bespoke or, or can be. Um, but I also think that that's kind of where we are in the industry right now. I think the proliferation of, of AI, um, a lot of tools and a lot of design system things too are making design, at least part of it, actually commoditized. And I think that that's part of how every industry goes. That at some point, the things that were bespoke become more accessible as technology progresses. They become more attainable for, for other people to do and more people are able to do them. And so that does drive price down and that happens in every industry. So in some sense, I think that it is, it is forcing a, an accelerated commoditization of design. But I also think that that was happening anyway. And I think these are pe people who offer... Uh, design as, as a service and by way of subscription, I think they're riding that wave and figuring out how to ride that wave well in an industry where the things that we do are getting commoditized and so are getting cheaper and cheaper. Um, I have more things to say about it, but I'll, I'll stop there <laughs> for now. I think you should go go on. I mean, this is super interesting. Hey, cool. I, I, I'll keep going. So, so I think another thing related to design subscriptions is... Um, the idea that the, you're capping the quantity, you know, that's the thing that, that's typically related to design system, uh, design, design as a subscription, is that a lot of folks who offer design subscription, at least from what I've seen, offer it's like it's one request at a time. And yeah. so what I, what I wonder about is how process-oriented you have to be in order to be able to do that. And then also the thing that I think is not being exposed is capacity. So that's the thing that I worry about because oftentimes I run a couple of businesses and I would like, I am like 5k a month to get like a really senior designer to do something like that sounds like a great deal. Um, and that sounds like cheaper than I would find somewhere else. But I'm like, what I'm worried about as a customer of those services is like, so how many clients do they have? Because, because the more clients they have, conceivably, wouldn't the, the lead time be slower for me? Would, would I not be able to get something fast, you know, as fast as I wanted if I can get one at a time if they have 30 clients versus 300 clients? So at some point, their capacity comes into play and that part is not transparent. And I think that when it comes to, to subscription services, I think capacity is a really important thing to make transparent because then you understand the supply and demand tension. So it feels like a, like a shady sales tactic because capacity is not transparent usually. Um, at, and one of the things that I've seen, I've, I've read a bunch of Reddit forums and <laughs> seen the tweets and all this stuff of, of some people who are very popular who are doing this service is that as they get more clients, as they become more popular, their service actually declines because of that. You know, so they're less responsive to requests. The quality of the work seems, seems to be getting shoddier. So a lot of people are, are increasingly dissatisfied. And I think because that, that's because the service provider who is providing the subscription, their incentives are of yours. You want them to have less and less clients as a customer. And they want to have more and more clients as a service provider. So I feel like there's there's a weird tension between what allows them to succeed as a business and what actually allows a customer to get a good result. So I think it's a it's a weird, interesting time for this kind of experimentation. Like I I, I applaud it and I like seeing it. I'm I, I'm curious about how sustainable that as a model is for our industry. I like the, that you frame it as an experimentation because that's what I like about it. I like the fact that uh, our community is thinking about other ways to monetize our services or our like expertise. And I agree with you that uh, this model seems to fit, not just seems, but I think it fits best like kind of the low level of design tasks, those like repeatable, controllable things that are easy to, to scope even without having a meeting. Because that's what this whole model relies on is like, hey, you just send me a request on Trello or you can send me an email and I just do it. Uh, I don't want to have like a whole meeting and understand your scope and challenge you and all these things. So in a way, maybe this accelerating commoditization, but also this model kind of fits best into the certain grade of, uh, I think, design projects and tests. And it doesn't really fit with like, oh, let's rethink branding let's rethink approach this whole thing uh but what i like the reason i do like this whole like trend is just because it's it is forcing a lot of designers to think about how can i do it this differently because i think we're kind of stuck in this uh trading our time for money and we're seeing a lot of design agencies struggling with it so where i'm leading with this then is like if you were starting super friendly today um, so the agency you closed last year, yep. um, I'm curious, like, would you 
have adopted a different model. So you had obviously a distributed model for the super friendly with the freelancers, with contractors, um, helping you out on different projects, which is, which at the time was, and still is for most, for the most part, super, super innovative. But I'm curious, like as someone who has been at the forefront back then in 2012, are you also the forefront now? So if you were starting an agency now, is there other ideas you have for Tom or listeners who want to try it out? Yeah. Oh, wow. Thanks for asking that question. Um, Yes. I, well, I would not have a different model. I believe in the model actually more now that I've shut it down than I, than I did when I, when I had it, I would just do it better. <laughs> you know, so I think that's the, that's the difference is now with some hindsight, you know, I, I shut down my agency almost exactly a year ago. So I have a year worth of hindsight to go like, all right, how, you know, how did that go? And I've of course been reflecting on it for the last year. I've got all the feels about it. And in fact, I'm getting a tattoo later this week to kind of commemorate that and kind of celebrate that idea. So definitely been on my mind for the last year a lot. What I would do differently, I, I, I believe in the model. Um, I think in general, I don't know that full-time employment is the best model for service providers in design. Um, I think that, mm-hmm. again, incentives are misaligned sometimes. Um, and and so what I drew a lot of inspiration from with Super Friendly is movie making. Um, and, and that's what, you know, it's built on our Super Friend model was built on the Hollywood model, which is that if you think about any movie that gets made in Hollywood, no one is a full-time employee. The directors, the the um, the, the writers, all you know, the crew, all those people, they're all freelancers. They're all 1099 employees, right? Like they're all contractors and yet they're still able to come together under a singular vision and work on that and do their individual parts at their highest level with someone or someone's lots of people coordinating and directing and producing and show running and you know all that kind of stuff and so i believe in that model especially for digital services i think that it works really well is that you can't always have the best people in the world on staff um that shouldn't limit you from actually getting the right people on the project. And one of the things that I believe and have learned over my design career that just continues to get reinforced is the idea that like, if you have the best people around, the work is going to be great. You know, if, if you have the right, it's not even the best people, it's the right people, you know, and, and the time that it takes to find those people and, and activate them and incentivize them and all that stuff. That's what was behind the model. You know, it wasn't just like, yeah, we got a bunch of freelancers and then we could just pull freelancers together. It was about the culture of, of how you bring people together and how you keep them together, focus on a singular vision for a temporary amount of time, knowing that in six months, we're all going to go our separate ways and we may never work together again. So how do you actually incentivize that unit? you know, those individuals to become a unit and actually do work together. The thing that I would do differently is because it was a contractor and network model, um, we didn't do a good job of training people beforehand. So one of the biggest questions that we would get, you know, especially with a team of mostly newer folks is they would go like, what's the super friendly way to do this thing? You know, because like, of course, we're hiring them because they're good at their jobs, design, engineering, writing, uh, UX, producing, whatever that is. But they wanted to know, like, what is what is our way to do it? You know, because I know my way to do it, but I'm now part of a new group. So what is our way to do it? And we just didn't have good questions for that. And so, uh, sorry, good answers for that. So, of course, we started to develop a handbook and things like that, but it was all retroactive. It was all too late, you know, while people were sort of learning through failure as opposed to learning through success. So if I were to do it differently, I would find some way to kind of require a six-week training for people that they would actually pay for in order to be a super friend. Like you, you pay to do the training and then we do some sort of like in two projects, you make back the, the money that you put into it. So it would be an investment to be right. part of the network. Um, but it would be something that you would get back because now you know our way of doing things. And we know that we don't have to spend that time because we've spent that time up front. So we invest in you, you invest in us. And then that returns by you doing really great work for clients that you get paid for and compensated for. And you have that. Understanding. So what I would do is I would build, I would focus much more on the network part because that's really what it is. It's a network-based business. It's not a design agency. It's, it's a different thing. It's a network-based business. So I would invest really heavily on the network side, the training side with materials and all that stuff, and then focus on the placement side. And that part we, we had right. You know, that part I think we did pretty well. So I would lean much more heavily into the upfront part and the onboarding than we did uh, when I was running it. What's an example of a thing that would be part of this training or onboarding? Like what was the what would be the like an example of a problem you would try to tackle with that? So one that we faced all the time was that everyone would come in and they would say, I know that my job here is to make the client happy. And I would be like, no, it's not. And they, and everybody would be like, what? Uh, 
what do you mean? Like, isn't that what all service providers are supposed to do at a design agency to make the client happy? I was like, that's not the way that we do things. And that would throw them into a tailspin. That would make them go right. like, so what are we supposed to do? And when I would say things to them, I, we had we had some onboarding videos and a handbook and all that stuff. I w- when I would say things to them, either through their directors or producers on their team or directly if I was doing one-on-ones or, or group coaching with them, and I would say things like, uh, super friends over clients, you know, prioritize our group versus the client. Because if we prioritize our group, if we're taken care of, then the client will get a good result. It, it's just an upside down way of doing things for a lot of people because the first time they've worked in that in that way. And so that that's an example that we would always fight that part where they would go, well, I did this, you know, whenever we do retros or things like that. Well, I did this because I want to make the client happy. I'm like, right. But did we achieve the objective of what we were actually trying to do, even though the client was happy? And sometimes we didn't. Sometimes like, yeah, the client was happy, but we actually didn't help move their business forward at all. And it's like, well, so then we did the wrong thing. And they would go, well, wait, but I made the client happy. I thought I was doing the right thing, you know? And so it's, it's just setting those, those expectations better. And so, you know, we tried to solve those with things like company values. And we would say, you know, the, our company, we had five company values and there were things like, um, work together, play together, eat together, learn together and win together. And people go like, yeah, I mean, those are nice things to put on a company charter somewhere, but what does it mean to play together? And so a lot of those things, I think what I would do is I would set up scenarios so that for people to experience what it means to play together in the context of a project, as opposed to just saying some empty mantra to them and go, yeah, figure out what that means. You know, eat together. Right. What, what does that mean? Should we eat lunch on, we're a distributed team. Should we eat lunch on Zoom every day? Well, everybody's lunch is different because we're at different time zones. So how do we do that? So even small things like that started to make people question whether they were good at their work, which was never an intention of mine. Right? I, I never wanted people to question if they were good at their jobs. I do want them to learn our way of doing things. So there's a way that those things fit together. And I think that just means like contact hours to actually practice those things before you're in front of a client doing them. Really cool example. And it kind of makes sense that this is the biggest challenge of the distributed agency, which is having people from different walks of life and also yeah, different locations, I guess, just having united under one process. So it does make sense. Um, but then we like to, to switch gears a little bit. One other topic we do want to talk about, which also kind of touches upon your work. It's super friendly, but uh, you recently published a book. First of all, congrats. I know it's a big Thanks. step. I mean, for you, it's not the first one, but for most of the people, it's like uh, kind of uh, life work. Uh, so your book is called Design That Scales, right? Uh, really cool read. Um, I like it because uh, it has kind of an unexpected message. There is It isn't as obvious as you pick up the book and you expect, okay, it's going to tell me most of the stuff that I already know. I just need to slightly tweak. There's a few of these like head scratchers where it's like, ah, okay, I love I love the new perspective here. Um, and I like the contrarian thoughts and advice, obviously. But yeah, let's start with basics. So for people who might not even know what design system is, what are they? Because you have a good definition of that as well. And maybe coupled with that, why is a design system a worthwhile investment for companies uh, and design teams? Yeah. So this is partially why I wrote the book is like even defining design systems is tough because there's so many different kinds. Like if, if you break down the words design and system, you know, design is basically doing something on purpose and then a system is a way of doing things. So that just translates to a way of doing things on purpose. Like that could be anything in the world, you know? So, so to say that that's what a design system is, that leaves a lot on the table. It is very inclusive because it's very broad, but it doesn't really say anything to us. So we have to define what kind of design systems. In the book, I identify six or seven different kinds, you know? So when some people talk about a brand language as a design system and a couple of years ago, I used to say like, no, 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 that's not a design system. But over time, what I realized is like, well, that's usually not the design system that we're talking about at big enterprises or corporations, but that is a form of design system for people. It is a purposeful way of doing things. Um, uh, having a brand language is that we only use these colors, which means we don't use all these other ones. Um, and, and sometimes a component library or a code library, things like that, those are design systems too. Well, those don't have anything to do with design. I mean, 
it again depends on how we define design so the the thing that i try to say in the book is like here are all the different kinds of things that you might refer to as a design system for the rest of this book i have a very specific definition that i use that i'm going to use in the rest of the book and a lot of it is within the context of a corporation of an enterprise you know a place that is managing two or more digital products usually like in the hundreds and then usually have like thousands of employees. And so in that context, a design system tends to be a package managed version controlled piece of software that has guidelines and references and components and parts and pieces and people that help you make something really well and over and over again. Right. And so, so that's the thing that I, I, I talk about design systems. And there's a lot, that's a, a very complex definition because it has a lot of moving parts. So I spend the rest of the book kind of talking about like, why is that a worthwhile investment to, to actually do? And it's because companies, you know, to your second question, companies spend a, and waste a lot of money and time doing things over and over again that they don't need to do over and over again, right? So that's the yeah. point of having a system is to actually commodity you know, to our, our early, this is how these two things are connected, you know, our earlier discussion, we actually want to commoditize some stuff that's good for us. You know, that's good for it's good for our industry. It's good for our, our users and our customers. And so how do we commoditize the stuff that we want to on purpose? And how do we not commoditize the stuff that we don't want to commoditize or actually it's harder to commoditize? You know, how do we do that on purpose too? So that's essentially the, uh, the broad tenure of the book. Yeah. I, I have to echo, uh, Alan's comments around it's a, it's a wonderful body of work. Should be very proud of it. And yeah, um, I absolutely drank it up, uh, when we got our copy through. So thank you. It feels like the book we need now after, you know, a decade or more of, you know, there's a lot of fetishization of design systems early on, a lot of kind of working this stuff out. And the book surprised me so many times because I've, I've you know, been involved in a whole bunch of design system projects, projects and you're kind of, you outline, yeah, this is how typically a project goes. And I'm like, yeah, I, yeah, I recognize that. And then like, and this is why shit goes wrong. <laughs> I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> I recognize that too. And you really do... Um, throw in some real new thinking for, for me especially around how to approach these things and it feels like very necessary reflection on stuff that works and stuff that really we need to think a little differently about and as, as someone who's been on the wrong side of design systems projects like i said you end up you call them like design system ghost towns and design system graveyards definitely been involved and uh, sad to say led some of those in my time um i really loved your sort of pilot schemes concept as a way to start a design system project going as opposed to the more sort of project-based way you know the way that may maybe we spun up uh design projects in the past uh, the way they're often sold and started for so for those that aren't familiar with this sort of pilot schemes way of working because i found it really fascinating uh, part of the book could you share what that is and maybe how it's more effective than maybe what feels like the obvious way to get a design system kind of off the ground pitched and initiated yeah sure um it, it, i think it's worth saying and I wanted to write a different kind of design systems book because there are so many good ones out there already, right? So I didn't want to write a definitions book. They're really great book that kind of great books that that outline like what a design system is and what the parts are and, and and you know things like that. That I'm like I don't want to rehash that because it's been written well. Uh, Ala Kolmatova's book called Design Systems, Jasenia Perez Cruz's book uh, Expressive Design Systems, Andrew Caldwell's book Laying the Foundations. Like I, you know I stand on the shoulder of giants in terms of that stuff. So the book that I wanted to write was a book of stories you know i wanted to write a book that that kind of like illuminated like here's how this stuff goes in real life you know built on top of the theory stuff and so the pilot methodology is like one of two things that whenever i teach design systems i can't not teach that because it's such a crucial part of it and and so the idea behind pilots is it's a simple one it's that what is it that you want to do over and over again you should probably do that in a small way first and then figure out how to scale that so, for example, if you work at a company that makes a lot of dashboards, what should you pilot with your design system? Probably a small dashboard project, right? Because what, how do most, and it sounds very simple, but how do most people pretty, how do most people start their design system work? They go, well, let's make some buttons and some tables and some cards and some footers and some headers and so, you know, all of the typical stuff. And it's like, how much of that stuff would you use on dashboards if you make dashboards? 10% of it. Well, then why'd you make the other 90%? 
all because I thought that's what we were supposed to have in our design system because material design has it, because Salesforce has it, because Shopify has it, because all these public design systems that we look up to that are beautiful and amazing, they have it in there. So ours needs to have that too. Like, but your business doesn't do what Shopify's business does. Your business doesn't do what Google's business does. So why would you have a design system that resembles theirs? And I think a lot of people don't stop to ask that question. You know, so if you think about pilots, uh, and, and I refer, you know, I refer to the like pilots of TV shows, what do what does a pilot of a TV show has to do have to do? It has to test a couple of concepts. Do these characters work really well? Are the situations compelling enough for you to want to watch an episode of 12 seasons of this? If not, we know what to tweak when we make the, the further episodes, you don't just go make a season of TV, you know, without knowing if the pilot is gonna is gonna do well, some TV shows don't get made because the pilot tanks. That's the point of it is to go, well, good thing we didn't spend $4 billion on that. Good thing we only spent half a million dollars on the pilot. You know, and so I think that's a really good model to follow. Obviously, what I'm learning is that I have I take a lot of inspiration from TV and movies and stuff like that in how <laughs> we do digital work, you know, because I think that they are proven models that are very similar to how how we can do things. And our industry is so much younger compared to those industries. Why not learn from from others' mistakes? So if that's how they test whether it's worth putting tens of millions of dollars into something is to spend half a million dollars to try it out. Why shouldn't we do the same thing too? So the idea behind pilots is you build a small thing in order that you should make more of those things, work out the kinks, and then harvest the good parts of that, the process, the, the system, the components, the people, you know, all of those things. And then you can repeat it again. But when you repeat it the second time, you actually have these all these assets that you took from the previous time that make it a little bit easier every time. So by the time you get to a seventh or a tenth or a fifteenth pilot, you have harvested lots of different things that you go, well, we know this works because it worked on the small version. As we do it a little bit larger, now we know that it works works on a larger scale. And that's how, you know, that's how startups scale. That's how companies scale. You know, it's, it's a, it's a simple idea. But again, we don't think about it when it comes to design systems, because I think a lot of people are so used to think of design systems as projects, not products, and certainly not practices. Now, having read the book, I'm like, yeah, Dan obviously like uses movie metaphors all the time. Like there's the Harry Potter kind of textbook yeah. notes bit. And when I was looking through the pilots, um, I think the the way that you break down a few examples is really really useful um as as ways to kind of find the opportunity for the pilot so the one might be worth kind of diving into one of those the one that i was like ah i should have tried this pilot on my last kind of design systems project was the indiana jones uh one right that's that where would you yeah. mind kind of using that maybe as an example of like picking the right thing um to pilot yeah. on yeah, so there's a couple of different uh, types of pilots. I don't have them all off the top of my head, but I'll talk about the Indiana Jones one. Uh, the idea behind the Indiana Jones pilot is, if you think about the Indiana Jones show, or uh, movies, right? They're the famous scene that I think a lot of people know is the scene where there's a... Uh, a bag, a pouch of something sitting on an altar, right? And he knows that if he removes that pouch, that something is going to happen because it's going to sense the lack of the weight on that. And so he replaces it with a bag of sand. I think it's a bag of sand. Um, and he thinks he does it, he accomplishes it, but he doesn't. And a big boulder kind of rolls at him that, it, that chases him that he had. So the idea behind the Indiana Jones pilot is um, you want to replace something without anybody noticing, without anybody knowing. And that's one type of pilot is... Um, with most organizations, they build apps and websites one by one. It's on a singular code base. It's not connected to anything else. It, you know, is it custom, you know, all of that stuff. And so it's not connected to anything. And that's what makes a design system a system. That's a system part of it is it's connected to something. And in design system land, that is connected to the original source, right? The source of truth, the, the, the one component that's linked to everything, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so what you do, oftentimes when you have a, an app or a website that's not connected to anything, the first step is to connect it to something. And what a lot of teams do is they go, well, while we're under the hood, we might as well redesign it. We might as well redo the UX. We might as well. And it, it turns from what could have been a six day project uh, and it turns into this six month 
endeavor of like, well, let's get more stakeholders in here. And it's it doesn't need to be that deep sometimes. Sometimes you just need to replace what's under the hood and connect it all. But to the user or to the customer or to the team, there's nothing different on the surface. It looks exactly the same. The UX is the same. You know, all of the things are the same, but under the hood, it's different, right? It's, it's been swapped. You know, you, the, the, the bag, the bag of gold, or I don't forget what was in, you know, is now swapped for the bag of sand. No one's the wiser on that. I think what's tough about that is a lot of companies can't stomach the idea that like, well, we know there's broken UX there while we're touching it. We might as well fix the UX. It's like, you don't have to do that part. But I think a lot of companies, it's hard for them to go. So we just, we were there and we just neglected to fix that. It's like, yeah, sometimes that, that's what refactoring is sometimes. It's like you're fixing a piece of this thing, you know, knowing that you'll get to the other part later. But I think a lot of, a lot of organizations have just too big appetite to go, well, let's, let's just bite off this whole thing. And it turns into a six month project. And now you like, it's that much longer until you see value. Yeah. And when you look at the investment, you know, the book kind of breaks down what, you know, the typical investment would be for the team behind a design system and all of that work. It's an enormous investment to try and, try and, uh, upfront and express value for when you haven't seen it. So the pilot thing is, yeah, such a neat way of kind of getting the ball rolling and, and picking the right pilot seems so crucial. So yeah, that, that, that bit in particular really resonated with me. Um, one other area that we really want to touch on today and feels like a theme kind of going through this of like um, measuring and value um, is your approach to design system metrics. Um, it really goes, the book goes beyond like table stakes, right? Things like efficiency savings, which feel like the kind of basic things that, yeah, design systems should do and you can measure that. Um, but you go into outlining some really practical ways to get to the heart of far more meaningful design system OKRs that in the specific organization you're in might really move the needle and actually have far more impact and help you get more buy-in, but also make this thing fly. So would you mind sharing the kind of process that you would go to to research and rank an OKR uh, and maybe share some examples of interesting ones that you've helped outline for clients or teams in the past? Because I found this, yeah. this OKR process like super, super helpful for getting to the heart of those really good metrics. Yep, totally. So uh, I, I like, as you know, I like metaphors. So I'll, I'll resort to some metaphors and some analogies here. Um, I think a lot of teams chase, a lot of design system teams chase uh, adoption as their primary metric. And it's like, and I think that's, that's good. And I, I think that we can't, do our work without that. But it's sort of like restaurants chasing um, edible food as their metric, right? Like, well, like, yeah, we, we can't have a restaurant without the food being edible. It, it can't be inedible. Um, but like, if that's the bar, you know, if that's the bar that you're trying to reach, that's a pretty low bar. You know, yes, food should be edible. That's like what you need by, by virtue of being a restaurant. Um, most restaurants or good restaurants, I should say, have higher bars than that um, and different bars than that. So some restaurants, they want to be the most popular in their city, right? They want to be the, the hotspot or they want to be, you know, have have diners every night. Most re Some restaurants want to be the best vegan food in the city. Some restaurants want to be the most premium food in their town or in their city. Some restaurants want to explore a particular kind of cuisine. Some restaurants want to give you an experience. Some restaurants want to get you in and out really fast. So like those are different OKRs per different restaurants, which makes sense because not all, all restaurants are the same. So why don't we apply that kind of logic to design systems and to organizations? Not all organizations are the same. If you work for a company that is a financial institution, shouldn't your OKRs be something different than a company that is a transportation company or an apparel company or a sportswear company? Like, wouldn't those companies have different OKRs? And of course they do. They have them at the corporate level. They have them at the executive level and the VP level and the, and the, the manager level. And then when it gets down to our tools, all of us chase a, the one, the same metric <laughs> adoption. Um, and so I think, I think what I try to encourage teams to do is like, well, let, let's look deeper than that. Like, yes, adoption. Yes, we need edible food, but what kind of edible do we need? Like we need, we need, we need to be faster here, or we need to be more in touch with certain customers, or we need to, to expand our reach or, you know, and that changes from season to season and company to company. So I'm often try, trying to encourage teams to like, let's connect again, the, but back to the system part, we have to connect even our OKRs and even our, our metrics 
to the rest of the OKRs of the company. That's what makes it a holistic system. So if this quarter, what we are chasing is higher revenue, then somehow our design system should drive higher revenue, shouldn't it? If, if this quarter we're chasing uh, uh, better market penetration, well, at some, at some level, our design system should help us with better market penetration or, or broader reach or, um, or the ability to expand into different languages or better localization or better accessibility. Whatever those things are, I think designers and design teams stop at the universal level. You know, like we want to be more accessible. Yes, all of us do. That's a great thing. How specifically is our company going to do that? Is it something specific about our customers or our user base or our, our some advantage that we have because we have, you know, these particular engineers that work here or these particular designers that work here or this CEO that has this experience? There's some advantage that we have that could help us accelerate. And I think the design system team stops short of that and they go, yeah, we're just chasing adoption. So how do we do that? Well, I guess everybody's got to use our buttons, right? And it's like, I've seen that happen a lot of times. I've, I've worked with a lot of companies who have 90 to 100% adoption of their design system and nothing has changed. Like, so what was the point of chasing 90 to 100% adoption? Like we didn't move any needle, any, any metric forward by doing that except the adoption metric. So it's like, you know, we're chasing our own tail on some of those things. Instead, our design system is, is here, like every other tool that our company makes and supports. It's here to help move something. So how do we tie it more directly to that thing? And that's a tough exercise. That's why teams don't do it. You know, the teams that are already, um, they're, they're stretched for time. They're already overworked. It's more work to do. Um, but I think it's impactful work and important work. Yeah, one of my pet peeves is... Uh... It's slightly on a different level, but it's just designers not being comfortable with metrics. There's this feeling of like, oh, if I'm using numbers, isn't that making me more in the service of business, less in the service of the user, less empathy for me, more empathy for the business? And I think one of the things to, to realize is that numbers are just additional source of empathy. And we're not going to lose empathy if we just also have a look at numbers. That's one thing. And the second thing is, which we also cover in the DMBA, is that it's a really cool tool uh, called Profit Tree. So basically, what you do is just you draw like a tree, where on top you put the main KPI of the company, which is usually revenue growth or profit improvement or decreasing costs, and then you can work your way down to your project and figure out how you can improve one of those like uh, higher goals. And essentially what that means is you applying the very thing that you're already good at, which is empathy, which is research towards the business side and trying to understand, as you said, then, what is the metric of this quarter? What is the metric of this year that we are caring about? And how can I tell the story even better of how design system will help connect that? So I just wonder, do you have any, any tips also from your experience? How do you figure out what those metrics are? First of all, Alan, I, I love all that stuff that you shared. I've never heard that profit tree metaphor. That I love that. <laughs> that's so good. And numbers help us get more empathy. Like that's man, that's gold. I, I love that. Um, I did a goal a, a goal planning session, um, just kind of an open webinar a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things that I shared in that is like you you can't know if you're on track if you don't know what destination you're you're trying to get to. So for for a lot of folks, it's like. Where is our company trying to go? That's usually defined somewhere. You know, if you work at a company that's not, that's not defined, you've got bigger problems, right? But usually your CEO knows that or your, your executive suite knows that or you have a company charter or there's some notion document somewhere floating around that says we exist to blank, whatever the blank, you know, is some version of that. Um, so. I, I wrote this book called, uh, it's a self-published book called Design System in 90 Days. It's a workbook. And the first step in the workbook, it's a 52-step workbook. The first step in the workbook is assemble the North Star, right? Because if you don't know where you're going, you don't know if you're going to be on track. And so without that, you're just driving around. And it's like, we wasted all of our gas and we drove around and we don't know if we got anywhere because you can waste all of your gas driving in a circle. Right? You just drive in a big circle and then you end up right where you started and you're like, huh, we drove all this way. And technically you didn't drive all this way. You just drove, <laughs> you know, like that's what you did. Whereas if you, if you have a destination, then, you know, you might take some detours or some roads might be closed or whatever. But if you don't know what the destination is, you don't know if you're moving toward that place or not. 
if it's north and you're going south, it's way easier to tell if you're if you're disoriented, you know, or if you're properly oriented, if you know the destination. So I think that stuff is really important is just knowing where you're going. And that's the first step. Without that, like whenever I work with a team, I go, so what are we trying to do with this design system? And they go, oh, adoption. I'm like, that's not good enough. Where are we trying to go? Well, where's our company trying to go? And what are we trying to help? And if they say, oh, we're actually not sure. I'm like, great. That's where we're going to start. We're going to start. We're going to look at all the corporate documents. We're going to look at the about page on our, on our corporate website. We're going to try to find what our company exists to do. And we're going to try to brainstorm some, some ways that our design system can help with that. And it, and that conversation to me, whenever I have that conversation, it's so different than most design system conversations that are about components and APIs and props and Figma variables and, you know, all that kind of stuff. All those things are important, but later. Uh, initially, the conversations are about, okay, if we're trying to drive customer growth, or if we're trying to change the way that the world, uh, you know, moves in terms of transportation, or in terms of housing, or in terms of education, well, what we could do with our design systems, you know, maybe we could have some features that do X and Y and Z, like, it turns into a whole different discussion, which then opens up new doors for how we can achieve adoption. Um, so I think when teams don't have that, a lot of teams don't know how to do that because they've never done that before. It's usually, oh, you're a designer, you make things look nice, you're an engineer, you write code. So that's why we we stop artificially at the adoption part. But if we could, once we mm. open those doors, then we bring we activate everybody's minds in a different direction. And to me, that's one of the most exciting parts about about doing that process is when you see your destination, you can have vision. You know, when you know that there's a destination, you can look at it and you can see it out there in the distance and you go, okay, I can, I can form a path to get there. Yeah. It's, it's wild. The focus that designers suddenly get when they start reading that kind of stuff. I, I think I've been victim to this myself in the past of not really understanding how the business I'm work for that makes money and that, where are we going? And you can learn a lot about whether you want to stick around with the business as well if once you start digging into that stuff. Um, so, yeah, a lot of very good reasons to to go and dive in and um, get out of our comfort zone, right? Um, I mean, that that's how I started getting into design systems and pricing and all that stuff too. It's like I was a designer and I remember working at an agency and going like, why did we why did we agree to do this for the client? And I was lucky to have a boss who said to me like, let me show you the statement of work or let me show, let me show you the proposal that we wrote. Uh, let me and let me show you the brief that the client sent initially. And once I read that stuff, I was like, "Oh, that's why we're doing a set of fifteen wireframes because we're worried." Got it. Now, now I understand why that. Because otherwise, I just thought like, I don't know, because they agreed to pay for fifteen wireframes, so that's why we're doing it. Even though we didn't. Oh, it's because we're actually trying to mitigate risk. That's why we're doing that. Now I understand. And like having that context to me was such an eye opener. And it, it made me go like, every time we start a project, I want to read the brief. I want to read the statement yeah. of work. I, and then it started making me go, I want to help write the statement of work. You know, I want to help write the proposal. I want, I want to be in the, on the initial meeting because I think like the, that's what makes it a system again is that now it's connected to the original source. And now with that, you know, a lot of people are, are very helped with context. And a lot of times context is missing because, you know, we don't have time or it's not, you know, it's above your pay grade or, you know, whatever it is. And I think that's unfortunate. You know, I think that the more designers understand the language that we're talking, and a lot of times that language is in terms of numbers and metrics and what it's got to hit, um, the better jobs we can do. Um, and I think without that, we're, we're, we're designing blindfolded. Absolutely. I think that's a fantastic kind of message to um, kind of wrap up that part of the conversation. Um, yeah, so much, so much leveling up can be done by just, just learning a little bit more about that. I feel like designers can be a hundred percent more effective by just like 10, 20% more business confidence. Mm. Um, so yeah, no, fantastic. Um, yeah, Alan, uh, we, we had like a, a fun question. We were going to kind of wrap up, um, our conversation with Dan. Do you think we're happy to go there now now that we're, yeah, I think we, we are. Yeah, Go we, ahead, Dom. Well, we had yours. some. We've, we've obviously <laughs> gone all over the uh, the map with like pricing and some heavier stuff around uh, business and um, learning about business and metrics. And we thought, researching about you, Dan, we've learned that you're a, a real sneakhead. So we wanted to finish Ooh. up with a with a question around around that. Uh, from a, it's a design question, which is um, which is two. Number one, we want to know what's in your rotation at the moment. Uh, okay. You know, what's what's the stuff, and then. Secondly, what is your kind of design classic? What is your favorite sneaker design of all time? All time. Wow. Okay. So they're close. Their answers are close uh, anyway. Um, 
in my rotation, I, I'm also the kind of sneaker collector who wears every every sneaker. So I, I don't have like sneakers that are only sit on a shelf or anything like that. Everything nice. is, is everything that I buy, I wear. Um, mostly I buy Air Jordan 1. Um, I love that. And I love the the form of that shoe. I love the design of it. I love how many different colorways exist for it. Um, unfortunately, so does most of the rest of the world right now. <laughs> so it's hard to hard to get my hands on uh, any, any pair that I want. Um, but I love that shoe. I'm wearing Jordans right now. I'm wearing the Chicago bread toes right now. Um, uh, and that's usually what's in the rotation. Every once in a while, I'll have some Air Max 90s that I put on and, and wear. Every once in a while, I have some Dunks. Um, and then a couple of like, uh, you know, other random pairs here and there. But usually it's a it's an Air Jordan 1. Air Jordan 1. So that's your that's your kind of go-to. That's my go-to. Kind of design. Yep. Have you seen the movie Air? I haven't seen it yet and I really want to see it. Is it good? Okay. Um, so what I like about movies is when movies are surprising. Right. And it wasn't a surprising movie to me because it was based on a bunch of books that I had read. Like I'd read Sonny Vaccaro's story and I'd read uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And, you know, it combines a lot of those stories into one. I still liked it because I'm a, you know, because of the subject matter. Mm. Um, but there was not there was not a lot that was surprising to me about the movie because it's such a compilation of other other stories. So it was like, I think I watched it on a plane. It feels like a plane movie to me. It's yeah, like, yeah, yeah it's it cool. It was good. It was a good way to, to pass two and a half hours or whatever. Don't need it on yeah. the big screen so much. Exactly. Yeah, and the name suggests you might want to watch it on a plane. Oh, here, that's right? true. Darren. Good point. Oh, it was thematically. Yeah, thanks, thanks. See what you did uh, there. <laughs> I also watched it, and I like movies that are actually correct also, and I didn't like the way they portrayed uh, Phil Knight. At least to me, also having read Shoe Dog, it felt like they made him look like a, almost like an idiot. Yeah, you know, yeah, stupid, totally. in, almost to an extent like a stupid guy and obviously he is not stupid he has to be very smart to have built nike but yeah that's another topic uh i'm getting painfully aware of our hour which just rang the full hour so dan we want to thank you for your time but just as a last last question is there anything maybe um you want to share with the listeners maybe where they can find more about the book about the other stuff you're doing anything at all uh yeah sure thank you um so the book is at design um you can check it out there it's officially out now it's been out for a couple of weeks um it's doing great i'm so thankful and grateful for all of the people who have picked it up and shared it and, and all that kind of stuff if you're interested in design systems design design that scales.com will get you there um it's also available on amazon but i would suggest you know support independent and small booksellers uh, Rosenfeld Media is my publisher. Um, please buy it from them if you can. Um, if it doesn't ship to you from them, then go buy it on Amazon or, or wherever. Um, <laughs> but please support independent booksellers because that's what keeps them in business. That's what gets people like me to, to write books. So appreciate all of that. And then if you're interested in more things like that, if you prefer courses or things like that, I run Design System University. Um, you can find that at designsystem.university. I'm in the process of relaunching our offering. Uh, so that'll come early in the new year. Um, we'll have lots of different courses and paths for different people based on their skill level. Um, which is something that we haven't had before. I mean, normally, it was just kind of a, a big a big pile of courses and you can kind of choose your own flavor. Uh, we have a little bit more handholding coming in terms of if you're a beginner or intermediate or advanced, here are different things that you can do to level up in design systems. So hopefully that's a thing that, uh, that can help you. And you can also find the links in the description of the podcast, of course. So again, thanks, Dan, for taking the time. It was lovely uh, catching up, uh, chatting about these topics. And I guess we see you again soon. Awesome. Alan, Tom, always great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks, Dan.